So we're all going to face adversity and we want to have hope. But I want to propose to you today that there's two ways to approach most problems and both are inadequate. And one is the pessimist and one is the optimist. Now pessimism, research has shown, is actually pessimists are more in line with reality than optimists. Optimists have a tendency to be a little naive about how difficult things are going to be. And so there's a lot of benefits to pessimism. Don't set your goals too high so you come crashing down. But pessimism doesn't see far enough and it doesn't see clear enough that there can be hope. There can be wins. Despite things maybe getting bad for a time, they might get better in the end. But optimism also doesn't see clear enough and it doesn't see far enough. There's times you'll say, well, I know this is going to be over in a week. I know this is going to be over in a month. Well, I just know things are going to get better. And they may not because you don't see clear enough that you wish it's going to happen. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. On the other hand, it doesn't see far enough because sometimes winning out in the end doesn't mean it's not going to get difficult for the next couple weeks, months, or even years. So the Bible offers something unique. It's got the benefits of pessimism, being a realist about the challenges, but also the benefits of optimism because research shows that whether you're a pessimist or you're an optimist, we need hope to survive. We need hope to persevere. We need hope to have resilience. And if you've ever been around people who are either one extreme or the other, and you can feel the downside to it, I remember my wife was picking out her wedding dress. She invited one of her friends to go with to uh, pick out the wedding dress. So she came out with her friend Julie, and she uh, she sort of looked around in the dress. It's my example of a dress. Right? I don't know if Ben done it, but that's, I imagine that's what it's like. So she spins around in the dress. Hey, what do you think? And her friend, who I knew from a lot of lunches, was not surprised at her reaction. I'm probably never going to wear a wedding dress. No one's ever going to love me. Probably never going to get a chance to get married. And my wife said it just totally destroyed the moment. This moment of joy. She was just so sad that her friend couldn't just step into her joy. It was like having a, a, a lunch meeting with Eeyore. <laughs> On the other hand, you ever been around an optimist? Somebody who is too happy for the circumstances. We were in New York one time and I had a very, very good friend of mine. He was going through a pretty terrible divorce, as they all are, but just heartbreaking. Good friends of ours. And the whole time we're there, we arrive in New York, and he's like, Man, isn't things great? Yeah, all things we got going on. We got plans there. We're going to go out to dinner, eat dinner, all day, and just talk, talk, talk. Oh, now we got this plan. We're going to go play ping pong over here. And it was just like, no. And we're just worn out. It was like having lunch with Tigger. I'm like, come on. You're going through a divorce. This is horrible. I'm not saying we don't have to talk about the whole time, but let's not pretend everything is good all the time. So there are these extremes, this sort of naive optimism that's not in touch with reality. And then there's this Eeyore-ish pessimism that just sort of drills you into a hole that you're already in. And we're going to discover how we can wrestle with that by looking at the life of Jeremiah again this week. Uh, To catch you up, if you aren't with us so far, we've learned about Jeremiah, who's a prophet. And Jeremiah was asked by God to go and deliver a pretty negative message. If you were to listen to most of Jeremiah, you'd say, that guy is a pessimist. That's Eeyore. I'm going to propose to you that he's not, but he has a very, very difficult, realistic message to deliver to his homeland, and he's living in a nation called Israel. So Israel at the time is going through a civil war. There is a north called Israel, the red section, and then there's the south section called Judah. The north section has already been conquered by a foreign nation called Assyria, and now this gigantic empire known as the Babylonian Empire 
is about to take over and they're going to try and conquer this area of the south. God tells Jeremiah to go and tell the people, his people in Israel, things are going to get worse before they get better. In fact, the king of Babylon, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, modern-day Iraq, is about to come in and he is going to crush them. But if they will surrender and give up, take this as the consequences of a hundred years of their rebellion, they will live. But they need to realize if they fight, they will lose. Talk about Debbie Downer. You could try it, but you're just going to lose. Wow, is that discouraging. In fact, it's so discouraging that the king of Judah is like, this guy's affecting morale. He's not giving people the kind of positivity they need so that we can get the, the war effort underway. So they decide to put Jeremiah in jail. So the king puts him in jail. And here's what it says in Jeremiah chapter 32. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, which was in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of the Judah's court. For Zedekiah the king of Judah had shut him up, saying, why do you prophesy with all this bad news? So he's placed in prison. And he's placed in prison because he's so negative. What a pessimist. No matter every time you heard Jeremiah talk, it was bad news. We're going to lose, 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 lose all the time. Not going to do it. What was amazing, if you listen to Jeremiah, though he's very negative about their short-term possibilities, he then will turn right around and say, my goodness, God's got a plan for us. God is with us. We're going to one day come back to the land. We're going to win in the end. Don't forget to have hope. Well, which is it, Jeremiah? He just bounces back and forth between pessimism, seeing the raw facts in the near future, and optimism that God has a plan, he is with them, they could trust him even in the middle of it. They're not sure what to do with him. I think a lot of times we're not sure what to do with circumstances like that. But here's what we know. We know we need hope to persevere. But we don't want the kind of hope, the kind of naive, especially Christians come across this way. I know things are going to get better. You're like, yeah, well, this is going to be going on for a decade. I don't think it's going to get better. We want real hope, but we don't want that fake, syrupy, false hope that doesn't work. You know the kind of hope I'm talking about? The kind of hope that makes you feel like a dope? I don't want to be the kind of hope that makes you feel like a dope. They're like, you know, this is not true. I don't want to be naive. That's why I have doubts about Christians, because their hope sounds kind of dopey. Their hope is dope. It's just kind of like, well, you've got to be kidding. No, that's not true. Why don't you engage your brain? Why don't you actually think for a moment before saying these ridiculous things that are coming out of your mouth? So God is going to try and teach Jeremiah and his people a lesson using a very unique real estate transaction, of all things. He says, Jeremiah, your uncle is going to come to you with the worst real estate deal in history. And he's going to offer you a deed to a piece of land that he owns. And he's going to ask you to buy it. Well, the reason his uncle's going to sell is because his uncle uh, owns a piece of property that's already been taken over by the Babylonians. Sure, I got a great uh, land deal for you. It's a really great property. Sure, it's just occupied by enemy forces. And he says, Jeremiah, I want you to buy that piece of land. The worst real estate deal in history. Here's how he says it. The word of the Lord came to me saying, behold, 
Hamliel, the son of Shamel, your uncle, will come to you saying, buy my field, which is in this field. For the right of redemption, you buy it. And sure enough, my uncle's son came to me in the court, offered this to me, said, please buy my field. So I knew it was from God. So I bought the field and the son of my uncle, and I weighed out 10 shekels of silver. So he buys this. What does this have to do with what we're going through? He then says, Jeremiah, this piece of land that seems worthless, there's no way you're ever going to return. You're conquered. People don't get returned to their lands. I am going to bring you back to this land. So I want you to take this deed. I want you to roll it up. And I want you to put it into an earthen vessel, a piece of pottery. Because you're not going to need it for a long time. But my promises are true. I'm going to get you through this. My promises are true. I'm going to bring my people back to the land. And I want you, while you're going through this difficult time, to hold on to the deed. Hold on to the promise that I will return you and we will win in the end. So that's the story from Jeremiah. Now from that, we're going to look at two lessons. Because you see, he's both not an optimist, but he has a lot of hope. But he's not a pessimist, but he has a lot of realism. So we're going to look at both of those. Let's start by looking at the pessimistic side. Pessimism doesn't see far enough or clear enough. It doesn't see far enough because it just sees immediately things are bad and they're going to get bad. And what happens is it sees the raw facts. This is one of the benefits of being a, a, a pessimist, actually, is pessimists have a tendency to see the facts better than optimists. The problem is when that cynical doubt comes in, the kind of cynical doubt where you see through everything, you doubt everything, I'm not going to be fooled by anything, you filter out gratitude and real hope because you don't want to be bamboozled by false hope. And doubt has this tendency, especially cynical doubt, to magnify things. I mean, it's bad enough that you're going through a difficult health crisis. When doubt hits in, I doubt God is with me, I doubt any good can come out of this, it even gets bigger. It's even more to handle. And all of a sudden, those facts turn into fears. And now you're wrestling with not only the facts of your situation, but all the fears of your situation. And now a bad situation is even bigger because you filtered out all the good in it and magnified all the bad. There was a Navy admiral by the name of James Stockdale. You may recognize him. He was the running mate of Ross Perot. Say, you're talking about difference. I'm talking about deficit. Say, say you're talking about difference. I'm talking about deficit. This is my roommate. Now, if you remember Stockdale, he's really known for one bad quote. He got up there in the vice president debate and said, who am I and why am I here? Which is very unfortunate because this guy was an incredible patriot. In fact, psychologists have named a term after him called Stockdale paradox. And it's how to endure difficulty. When he was captured in Vietnam, right before he was put into one of their camps... He prepared himself to say, this is probably going to last at least five years. He was close. It was seven and a half. He said those that survived POW camps were those who were very, very realistic. And those who died, he said, I know exactly who died first. It was the optimists. Because they set arbitrary deadlines. God will definitely have us out. Our country will definitely have us out by Christmas, by Easter, by Thanksgiving. And those deadlines would come and go and they would die of a broken heart and give up hope. He said the Stockdale paradox is those who, they see the facts, this might be a while, but they don't let fear blow it up even more. And they know that even in the midst of their realism, I will win in the end. And the reason he survived and other POWs survived is because they said, I may not win the battles, but I will survive the war. He came against 
the fact that doubt doesn't see clear enough, I will eventually win, or far enough, I can out-persevere the circumstance. Now, there's three ways that doubt really begins to magnify problems and make things worse. One of them is that things get very personal. It's not just that I'm sick. It's not just that my, my kids aren't talking. It's not just that I, that I can't see my grandkids. It's not just that my best friend betrayed me. All of a sudden, doubt magnifies it and we think everything is personal. Life's out to get me. Bang. It's not bang, it's me. And now, it's not just the facts. I'm now angry that it's all personal. God's not for me. God's punishing me. God's out to get me. Life's out to get me. And now you're carrying the weight of not only the facts, but now the sense of paranoia that God's out to get me. I don't even have access to hope if I wanted it. Everything gets personalized. There was an experiment done in the 70s called learned helplessness. And again, thank goodness they don't do these experiments anymore because it's kind of inhumane. But they put these dogs into a cage. And they electrified the cage with a low-end electricity. And a minute the electricity went on, the dogs would bark and they would jump and they would run for the door. So they put the dogs back into the cage. This time they locked the door. They turned on the low-level voltage. They could feel the shock. And they barked. And they, and they ran around. But no matter what they did, they couldn't get out. Eventually, they conditioned them that as soon as the electricity came on, they didn't bark. They didn't even try and get out. They just stood perfectly still and just took it. They then turned the electricity on and opened the door. And even with a door that they could get out, they had just been conditioned to be helpless. Life's out to get me. Nothing I can do about this. There's no way out. So the worst case scenario of, of doubt and pessimism is it conditions you to be fearful. There's nothing I can do. I'm conditioned to be helpless. Life's out to get me. I got a black cloud over my head. Conditioned helplessness or learned helplessness. Because everything's so magnified, I'm just overwhelmed by it all. The second thing that happens with doubt is it magnifies and when it magnifies, you have a problem in your life. You know, you, came home, you come home today and you find out there's a fire on the stove, for example. So there's a fire on the stove, and that's bad, right? You don't want a fire on your stove. You don't want bad things happening to the pan. You want bad things happening to your range. But when things go from personal to pervasive, you don't just have a problem with the stove. What it feels like is the whole house is on fire. I didn't just have a difficult conversation at work about work. No, no, no. I had a conversation that was so bad, my whole life's falling apart. Right, if you remember, you've, you've had teenagers come home. You said, how was your day? Horrible. Horrible. My whole day is horrible. Why? Because of this text, right? Okay, well, a text might be horrible. doesn't mean your whole day is horrible. And here's how doubt magnifies everything. Because now every little problem just spews and contaminates into everything. You can't even imagine how anything could be good, how any good could come out of it, because it's all devastated. Jeremiah is feeling that way toward God. He turns to him and he's like, God, do you see what's going on here? Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. The city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans to fight against it because of the sword and the famine and the pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. You see it? You said to me, oh, Lord God, buy this field. And the field's been taken over for money. I wasted that money and you told me to get witnesses. And now it's all given over, even the surrounding area, into the, to the hands of the Chaldeans. What am I supposed to do about this? Then the third stage of doubt is it only magnifies things that feel personal and that feel pervasive. 
But in general, when your brain's kind of functioning right, psychologically, biologically, you got enough dopamine and you're handling stress, in general, you know life has an eraser. Not everything can change, but you can change some things. Things are in pencil. I, I can make some modifications. I can impact this. I'm not conditioned to be helpless. Hey, this is just a season of life. It may last longer than I want, but it's just a season. But when doubt and pessimism takes over, everything is not only personal and pervasive, but permanent. I'm never going to get out of this. I'm never going to walk again. Our marriage is never going to be happy again. Our kids are never going to talk to us again. I can never survive if this doesn't change. And that permanence magnifies the facts that are already bad and now you're not just weighing the problem of the present you're weighing the problem of you're worried about the present and next day and next week and next month and next year as i mentioned one of the things i've been doing for the last couple of months i've been going to counseling every week for ptsd and so there's been related to a couple things one uh, parents of special needs children often have ptsd and also those who are long-term caregivers and i find myself in a circumstance where I'm doing both. And of all the things I'm learning, one of the things I'm learning uh, is actually something Jesus says, even though it's not a Christian counselor. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow because today has enough problems of its own. And that often when panic and fear comes over me, it's because I'm not just in the day saying, can I get through today? God, I want you, need you to be my daily bread. I instead go, wow, this has been going on for so and so months. My wife said the sciatic for two and a half years. This is the second surgery. And now I've taken the weight of the past and magnified it into the present moment. Then I think about the present and say, I can't keep doing this. This can't go on this long. I can't survive longer than. And then I weigh all of the future, the next 80 years with my son's care, whatever. And now it's no wonder. It's panic and fear because I'm no longer just dealing with the present. I'm dealing with the present and the past and the future all together. And it's overwhelming. So I'm learning how to take a day at a time. Be realistic about the facts. But also, not allow the magnification of doubt to bring, think everything is permanent That one problem means all problems or that life or God is out to get me. And that's because pessimism doesn't see clear enough that there is hope and God does work and things do change. And it doesn't see far enough that hope can come. God can work in the midst of it. And even though circumstances may not get better, God can make you better while circumstances may stay the same. God, what do you want to do in the midst of my circumstances to help me? I've also learned something that's very counterintuitive to me, and that is that sometimes surviving is success. Uh, That is is just hard. It's like spitting that in my mouth. I don't want to survive. I want to thrive. But sometimes, in certain circumstances, simply surviving is success. And that's okay. Now let's talk about optimism. Optimism doesn't see far enough because often things get worse before they get better. And pretending they're not is not going to give you any hope. You're going to end up dead in a POW camp, according to Stockdale. So sometimes your need to have it solved quickly is just not going to correspond to reality. And so if you want to be an optimist, you need to see the downside and the upside to optimism. And one of the downsides is what psychologists call magical thinking. 
Magical thinking is not speaking truth to yourself. It's speaking fantasy to yourself. As if you can magically make things happen just by thinking them. Now, that's not to talk about the need for gratitude. That's not to say the need to, to remind yourself God is with you. I'm going to win at the end. I'll eventually persevere. But if you say to yourself, I know for sure if I just think it, it'll magically happen. You will eventually get disappointed by magical thinking. Because you'll find there are some things you cannot think your way out of. You can't change reality. I remember when uh, my son was two, eight years ago. It's one of the first times I shared publicly that we found out that he was incurably blind and that he had autism. And I had lots of very, very well-meaning Christians met me after the service. And they said something like this. Chad, I just know he's going to be able to talk. Chad, I just know that he's going to be healed of his autism. I just know that this is going to be better. Well-meaning idiots. Right? I don't doubt their heart. I don't doubt trying to be helpful. Eight years later, he still has autism. And he's still nonverbal. And I love him to death. And he is a sweetie. False hope of magical thinking is not helpful. You don't know. Now you can say, here's what I know. God is going to be with you no matter what. Here's what I know. What's a surprise to you is not a surprise to God. Here's what I know. God is going to use you in his life. And God's going to develop things in you that you couldn't have imagined. And God's going to create, make you into the best version of yourself if you trust him. And God's going to use you to learn things you've never learned before. They're going to be incredible. That would have been true. So be very careful. Sometimes when we're well-meaning, we, we give false hope. And false hope isn't helpful. Because, like Stockdale Paradox, you come crashing down at the end. Now, here's some hope that Jeremiah gives the people in the middle of bad news about Jeremiah, about the Babylonians. He says, Oh, Lord God, behold, you made the heavens and earth by your great power and outstretched arm. God, you are powerful, even when it feels like you've left a building. There's nothing too difficult for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of of others. You're the great and the mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work. And your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of man to give everyone account to what they have done. He just meditates on truth. You are with me. Even though it feels like you've left the building, you're still on the throne. I don't know how you're going to work, but I know you have the power to work. He begins to hold on to those promises even when he's not sure how they're going to play out. And that's the second part. If you're an optimist, often as an optimist, we need to learn how to put our deed in the jar. We got some good news. We got some promises. But we don't realize they're going to have to be stuck in an earthen jar. It might be 30, 40, 50 years before the full expression of that comes true. Some of us have aging parents or or conditions that this side of heaven, you may not see your body fully restored. The the promise of the Bible is that you can know God will come through as his promises. Often in this life, but if not, always in the next. And that can be the constant sense of real hope you have, even as you face circumstances that some which are changeable, some which are not. But you put your deed in the jar. You say, I'm going to hold on to this promise God is with me. I'm going to hold on to my promise that God is going to restore, that God's going to hold evil to account eventually, that God's going to reward me for doing the right thing at the right time, if not immediately, but in the future. And so you put your deed in the jar. You hold on to these promises, even when it feels like they're, they're a little bit in the distance. And then while you're going through this, while you're going through this difficulty, you constantly fill your tank with truth. 
See, our hearts need hope and gratitude to survive. And so while you're going through the challenges, you don't just say, well, one day I'll die 80 years from now, then it'll be fine. All right, that, that, that's not quite enough. It's even in the meantime, I got to pour constant truth into my life. Because remember, doubt wants to magnify fears in your life. It's going to pour fear over and over and over. So I'm going to have to combat that fear by constantly pouring truth into me. I feel like it's never going to get better. It might. Things aren't permanent. Life changes. I don't control the future. Oh my gosh, life's out to get me. No, 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 no. Stuff happens to other people all the time. It's not personal. It's just difficult. And I combat these lies. It's not pervasive. It's not everything's bad. Just these big chunks are bad. It's not just that it's permanent. No, no, no. There's still some aspects of my life I can control and I can influence. And so you continue to come against these lies and these fears by dumping truth into your life. And I think that's what Jeremiah is doing here in that verse I read. God, you're still all powerful. You're still in the midst of this. You're still working here. I'm still trusting you. In fact, he goes on and says this. The Lord God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. So, again, bad news is coming in the short term. However, God says, behold, I will gather them out of all the countries I've driven them. So after you get scattered, after you get taken away and deported to Babylon, I want you to know I'm still with you. I still have promises for you, and I still have a future for you. They will be brought back to safety. And I will be their people and they will be my God. And I will, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Which is the word fear there is like a sense of awe of me forever. For the good of them and their children after them. I, I'm for your good. I'm not your enemy. I will turn away from doing, so I will not turn away from doing good. And I will put the, the awe of me in their hearts so they do not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will surely plant them in the land and my heart and with all my soul. Thus says the Lord God, just as I have brought all this calamity, allowed this to happen to my people, I will bring on them all the good that I promised them. And the fields will be bought in this land again. Of which you say, no it won't, it's desolate. There's no way anyone's man or beast is ever going to come here again. No, no, no. After it's been given to the Chaldeans, men will buy fields for money again. They will sign deeds and they will seal them. They will take witnesses in, in the land of Benjamin, in the places of Jerusalem. And I will cause their captives to return. And this must have been totally, completely unthinkable. You've got to be kidding. I mean, even in history, how many times does, a, does a, an empire conquer a land, take its occupants, and then later give those occupants back the land? But God says, I want you to know, I will do that. And history records that 70 years later, the Babylonians will be conquered. They will be conquered by the Persians. An incredible historic account of how they conquered the Babylonians. And the Persians don't particularly care about this area of Judea. And in many accounts in the Bible, the book of Esther and others, um, you get to hear the biblical account of this historic event. And Persia says, we'll send you back. And sure enough, that plot of land... That deed that had been buried in this jar for the last 70 years becomes prime real estate for Jeremiah's kids and grandkids. God wants us to know that while you're going through difficulty, keep pouring truth into your life. He's got truth for you. It tells the optimist there's good news, but it's a lot farther along than you think. It tells the pessimist there is good, and just always meditating on the bad is making a Debbie Downer. It's not going to get you through this. You need to see far enough in the future 
that I have a plan for you. In fact, it's interesting. When they did that study of conditioned helplessness, they had all these dogs. They would turn electricity on and boom, the dogs would just be totally still. And they said, I wonder if you can uncondition helplessness. So what they did is they had the door open and none of the dogs were running out. So they took a new dog, one who had not been conditioned, and they put him into the cage with all the other dogs. Electricity was off, so they're all kind of playing around, and all of a sudden electricity went on. <clears throat> Every dog that's been conditioned goes totally solid, doesn't make a sound. But this dog that's fresh is like, <laughs> he's running around, jumping, trying to get away from the cage. He's like, sees the door open, <laughs> he's out of there. And the psychologist watched as these other dogs almost like came out of their trance. Uh-oh, what does that mean, say? And they walked out the door. And they found a way of escape. In one sense, God knew that pure pessimism and hopelessness, especially in a world that is, will kick you in the teeth over and over again, we've been conditioned to be hopeless. Or we've been conditioned to be optimistic in a syrupy way that doesn't play itself out. And we disappoint even ourselves over and over again. So God knew the only way to deal with the problem was to go into the cage himself. So the God who made the heavens and earth came and became a man so he could come into the cage. And by coming into the cage, we find, do good things always happen to good people? No. The best man who ever lived on earth got crucified, got betrayed, got a crown of thorns pushed upon him in an unjust trial. And yet, just when you think, well, that's the worst, most depressing story ever, the optimism that God used that crucifixion and that denial and all of that horrific circumstances to bring about the most powerful message of life, the biggest comeback in history, the biggest source of, of joy. And so when you see someone wearing a cross, it's actually kind of silly if you think about it. I'm wearing a cross, which is the equivalent of wearing an electric chair around your neck. But we wear the electric chair around our neck, the old Roman cross. Why? Because what was an, a symbol of execution is now a symbol of life. And if God could take something that was an execution device, like an electric chair, and turn it into a source of forgiveness and hope and renewal, then maybe he'll do the same thing for you. And whatever circumstances you're in that have been magnified, that you felt frozen by, this is your moment to go, wow, somebody got out of this. He resurrected himself from the life. He forgave his enemies. He made a way where there seemed to be no way. And you're like, whoa, maybe I can have hope. Not a false hope, a real hope. Because Christianity claims not to be a religion or a philosophy. It claims to be history. So you can study the facts. Either Jesus really came to earth, really died and really rose to dead, or he didn't. If he didn't, the Bible itself says, throw it all away. It's worthless. But if it is true, it has profound psychological and historic implications. It means God does have a plan. He can be trusted. When things look the worst, God can turn them around and use them for the best. And you can ultimately win in the end. Not by being a naive optimist. Not by being a depressive pessimist. But being someone who puts faith in the God who sees far enough and clear enough in any and all of our circumstances. So I don't know where you are this morning, what kind of hope you need. But I want to pray some hope into you. The word encouragement means to put courage in you. So I just want to pray some courage over you as we conclude today. That you would sense hope even in the midst of whatever challenge you're facing. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know what each person's facing here. Some people we got great circumstances going on. But we got a slice of it we wish we could change. And that slice is producing some fear and anxiety 
and doubt. God, would you teach each person here, would you remind each person here how to put their deed in the jar? Will you whisper to them or maybe highlight something I said in the last half hour? Say, God is with me. Maybe you want to say that to yourself right now. God is with me. He can use this to better me. What feels permanent is not permanent. And God, I want to trust you to use these circumstances to bring about the best version of me. Forgive me for ways I've second-guessed you and help me to learn to trust you as I face these challenges together. Father, we ask that you teach us how to put our deed in a jar. In Jesus' name, amen.